mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer. You've kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, let us hear and read the signs of Jesus and believe in him as we ought. Bless the the, uh, teaching of your word today that your church might be built up. We might be made more like Christ. Love him more, know him more truly as he is, and follow him better. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You've heard me say this uh, more than once before, but i got to tell you, I love this passage. Any time that you get the glories of Christ and the unity of Scripture presented in the same place, you know that it's going to be fun. Not a, not a trivial kind of fun, a powerful, transforming kind of fun. The kind of fun that Christians like, right? When uh, Jesus was first calling his disciples in the previous passage, Philip, after encountering Jesus, went and found his friend Nathaniel. And he said to Nathaniel, We have found the one. We have found Him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip's point to his friend Nathaniel was that for nearly 1,500 years, Moses and the prophets and the writers of poetry in the Old Testament had been talking about this person. We've been waiting for this person, this promised Messiah, Son of David, King of kings, and Lord of lords. And he says, Nathaniel, uh, we found him. I just talked with him. And his name is Jesus. In the passage this morning, we're going to see the first sign. John says this is the first of signs that Jesus did during His earthly ministry. The first of many miraculous proofs that Philip's words were exactly true. That this was the One for whom the people of Israel had been waiting and for whom the whole earth had been waiting. 
The last verse of, the, of this passage this morning says this about the miracle described in it. It says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. Now, I want to look for a minute at, at that idea of signs. Why did John and the other Gospel writers refer to the miraculous works of Jesus as signs? Well, let me paint a little scenario for you. How many of you have ever uh, redone wood or laminate flooring in your house? Okay. If you did it yourself and you've got a circular saw in the garage, you'll, you'll understand where I'm going with this. Let's say that you're uh, redoing your flooring and it's going along very nicely. And then, then at one point in the process, uh, you get just a little bit careless as you're making a good cross cut on your circular saw. And all of a sudden, one of the fingers on your hand is no longer 100% attached to the hand. And uh, you're, you're kind of stunned and you, you realize something's got to be done. And you're not quite sure what to do, but you realize, uh, well, you live only two miles from Medical City, Dallas. And so you wrap your hand up very tightly and you grab your keys and you run and you get in the car and you drive very quickly over toward Medical City. When you get to the intersection of Park Central and Merritt Drive, there's a big red sign that you come across, and it says emergency room. And it has a, an arrow pointing due east. So you, you pull your car right up beside the sign, and you grab your keys, you turn it off, you grab your keys, you jump out, and you stand there under the sign waiting for someone to fix your hand. How long do you think you're going to be standing there waiting for medical attention? Well, probably quite a while because the emergency room is half a block east of that sign. If you take a sign to be equal with that to which it points, you are going to draw conclusions that will leave you sorely disappointed. And if you take the miraculous signs performed by Jesus in this and the other Gospels and treat them as the thing in themselves instead of as pointers to the thing, to something much, much greater, you'll end up with invalid and unbiblical expectations and you will be sorely disappointed. If you read the passage about Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding feast and what you get out of it is that you're going to get to save a bunch of money on your daughter's upcoming wedding because Jesus will take care of the beverages. You'll be missing the whole point. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's a really silly illustration, Tom. Nobody thinks like that. Really? Consider how many sermons are being preached right now that are declaring in effect that because Jesus healed a man blind from birth, He will certainly heal your cancer. Sermons that are declaring that because Jesus miraculously filled the fish net, fishing nets of the disciples with an overwhelming haul of fish, that you can count on Him to make you wealthy. Those kinds of all-too-common conclusions, along with many that are much more subtle, but just as wrong, badly miss the point of the miracles because they confuse the sign 
with that to which the sign is pointing. So what was it to which the signs that Jesus performed were pointing? It's a very important question. What happened when Jesus did these signs? First of all, there was indeed an immediate, tangible, short-term impact on those who witnessed the signs and were affected by the signs. In this passage, everybody at the wedding got to enjoy some very fine wine. And the bridegroom and the bridegroom's family was spared from a terrible shame and embarrassment of running out of wine during the the wedding celebration. Those were gracious outcomes that affected many people, and God often does that kind of thing. But those outcomes do not give us the reason for the miracle. John 20, verses 30 and 31, spell out for us the reason for the signs in this Gospel. John explains why, in fact, he chose to record some signs and didn't, didn't include all of them. He said there are far too many that, that were done to include. But he said, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. See, the purpose of the signs was to demonstrate who Jesus is. That He is the Christ, the Son of God. So that we may believe in Him and believing may have life in His name. John 2, verse 11 that I read earlier, the last verse of this passage that we're looking at this morning, says this beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. So for them, the signs had the the goal fulfilled. The purpose of His miraculous signs is to manifest Jesus' glory. What does that mean? It means to show off who Jesus is. You want to know what it means to glorify God? For you to glorify God? It means to show off who Jesus is. Anyone who actually saw one of these signs, who witnessed firsthand what Jesus did, got to, got to behold a compelling proof that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. See, Jesus did things that the prophets said the Christ, the Messiah, would do in order that He might show off the fact that He is the Christ. It also happens that the things that He did were things that only God could pull off. And that was in order that men would know that this was God the Son. See, the signs manifested, demonstrated who Jesus is. Now, that's not a new purpose for miracles in the Bible. You can back up nearly 1,500 years way before the events recorded here, and here's what you'll find of God's declared purpose for the signs and wonders that He performed in the Old Testament. I'm just going to give you one example. Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Then Yahweh said to Moses, 
Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them in order that you may know that I am Yahweh. What was the sign for? What were the signs for? That you may know that I am Yahweh. God's purpose for doing miracles and wonders in the Old Testament was that people would know that He is who He is. And in the same way, the purpose for the signs that Jesus did during His earthly ministry was to demonstrate that Jesus is who He is. Messiah. Savior. Lord. God. There are two responses that people have when they behold who Jesus is by seeing what Jesus does. Most do not believe in Him. They find some way to explain those miracles away. The Pharisees even blame the devil for Jesus' miracles. Some do believe. And believing, they are saved eternally. Verse 3 of the passage says, When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine, as if Jesus didn't know that. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Mothers, how would you feel if uh, your son said something like that to you? I've heard dramatically different interpretations of why Jesus addressed his mother as woman instead of mother in this passage. I believe some of those explanations uh, soft pedal what Jesus is doing. They don't go far enough and, and some go too far and make it out as if he's being disrespectful. Jesus uses the same title, woman, when he's addressing the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, the woman at the well. And when he's addressing the adulterous woman in chapter 8, who was about to be stoned to death by Jewish religious leaders. And then he uses that same address, that same salutation once again with its, toward his mother in chapter 19. This time, as he is dying on a cross for her sins and ours. He says to her, as John the Apostle is standing right beside her, he says to her, woman, behold your son. And he says to John, behold your mother. He's handing off the care of his mother to his faithful apostle. Woman is a salutation that Jesus used when he was speaking to a woman as that woman's Savior and Lord. Here in John chapter 2, uh, by the way, that's something your son will never get to do. Right? Here in John 2, I believe the heart of Jesus' reason for addressing his mother as woman was to assert a very simple truth. All the way through his life up to that point, his childhood, his youth, his young adulthood, he had been the best son that any mother had ever had, and I'm sure that drove his brothers completely crazy. You can be sure that he had honored his father and mother marvelously in keeping with the law of Moses. Nobody else had ever honored their father and mother as he did. 
He had submitted countless times to their God-given authority and He had served them very, very faithfully. But now, His earthly ministry was beginning. This was days after He had been baptized and God had declared Him His beloved Son in whom He was well pleased. The path to which His heavenly Father had called Him would not be anything like the path that His earthly mother would choose for Him. It was the path to the cross. When Jesus said to, here to His mother, what have I to do with you? He was actually using a common expression found several times in the Old Testament. And in all three Gospels, all three other Gospels, <clears throat> in all cases, all cases in which this idiom, this, this phrase appears, there is a consistent tone of rebuke. A man who identified himself to Jesus as legion, who was overpowered by a myriad of demons, said to Jesus, what have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. It would be pressing too far to say that Jesus was being disrespectful to his mother. That would have been a violation of the law. But it would be pressing too far in the other direction to say this was not a rebuke. It was a rebuke. D.A. Carson, I believe, nails it in his excellent commentary. Carson says, we must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He declares his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He was making it clear to his mom that he was about to act. Not to fulfill her purposes, but to fulfill the purposes of His heavenly Father and His purposes alone. And I believe Mary got the message. And I believe that she immediately determined to get herself out of the way of whatever God the Father was going to do through His beloved Son. And the next words that came out of Mary's mouth have to rank among the greatest counsel any human being ever gave to any other human being. She said to the servants, what He tells you to do, do. I believe she knew very well at that point that Jesus, her Son, was going to act to glorify His own name to show off who He is. And because He said to her, my hour has not yet come, which throughout the Gospel of John refers to the hour of His passion and crucifixion, she also knew that He was not going to glorify Himself to everybody that was in that wedding crowd. That it would be a select few. And that's just what He did. Now I want to lay another question for you, and that is how reasonable was the command that Jesus then gave to the servants? Well, if you look at the immediate need, the need was... Uh, well, we have this big wedding party. It's still in full swing and we're about out of wine. Now that, 
In that culture, the bridegroom's family, not the bride's family, the bridegroom's family provided for the wedding feast. And so it was probably the, the groom's dad that was the host of this whole, this whole thing. It was the culture of shame and honor, and it was shameful not to provide well for guests. In this case, the groom's family hadn't bought enough wine for all the guests, and uh, the celebration, as I said, was still, still going on. So Jesus gave a command to the servants. He said, round up the six huge water pots. And they, they, they were for water of purification. And then he said, fill them up with water. Now, I can just kind of envision what was going on in the chief servant's head as he hears this. Thinking, how do I put this? Sir, I'm not sure you understand the problem here. We're not out of water. We're out of wine. Jesus says, no, fill the pots, fill them up with water all the way to the brim, all six of them. And then draw a cup from one of these water pots and take it to the head waiter. And once again, I can, you know, I can kind of feel for this chief servant. He's thinking, how do I put this? Uh, Sir, excuse me once again, but if I take a cup of water to the head waiter when he's been demanding wine and he's gotten really agitated about the delay, How exactly am I supposed to explain why I would do such a crazy thing? I've shared with you before a question that my daughter, Jessie, asked me when she was a young teenager. She said, Daddy, do I have to obey you even when you're acting crazy? (laughs) You know my answer, right? Yes. Unless I tell you to do something that God forbids. Well, let me ask you, how do you respond when something God is requiring of you makes no sense to you? Well, at least we know that's really unusual, right? Those times when God requires us to do something that just doesn't match up with our logic. Doesn't happen very often, right? Wrong. In the days of Noah... Probably nobody had ever seen rain before. A mist came up from the ground and watered everything. And God said to Noah, you're going to need to build a really, really big boat. And then when the time is right, I'm going to have you bring representatives of all kinds of animals and get them onto that boat because I'm going to flood this whole earth so that every creature on the face of the earth is wiped out except the ones on that boat. Did that make sense to Noah, you think? certainly didn't make sense to the rest of the people that ended up in the water. Moses was 80 years old. He had been shepherding sheep for 40 years. And he encounters this bush that's on fire and not consumed. And a voice comes out of the bush and tells him, Moses, you're my man. You need to go and stand before the most powerful king on the earth and tell him that he has to release all of the Israelite slaves upon whom his economy has become utterly dependent for nearly 400 years. 
You think that made sense to Moses? Jericho was a heavily fortified city with massive, thick walls. Its king and its valiant warriors had a whole lot of experience defending that city from very fierce and very well-equipped armies. And then here comes Israel. They have no siege works. They have very limited weapons. They've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And God says to Joshua, here's what I want you to do. Have your troops march around the city once each day for six days, and then on the seventh day, have them march around it seven times. And then after they march around it seven times, have seven priests blow seven trumpets, and then once the trumpets are sounded, have everybody shout real loud. And the city will be yours. You think Joshua felt like that was a good battle strategy? That it made sense? Gideon. God described the army that Gideon was about to go up against as like grains of sand on the seashore in number. Gideon started with 32,000 troops, horribly outnumbered. And God reduced that number to 300 and then told him, now, now go into battle. You think that made sense to Gideon? God told the Judahites when Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldean mercenary army came down to get to yank them out of their homes to steal their flocks and their herds to take them and their children into captivity, they needed to not resist. He told them that while they still had armies. He said, don't resist. If you resist, you'll have me to deal with. Did that seem to the Judahites like a reasonable way for the God of armies to deal with His covenant people? Jesus said to a man lame from birth, Stand up! Take up your pallet and walk. 5,000 people gathered on a hillside. It's getting late. They're all hungry. The only person in the whole crowd with any food is a little boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus says to His disciples, Tell everyone to sit down so we can start eating. That makes sense to the disciples. Well, it's good to know at least that God hardly ever asks His people to do things that don't make sense to us, right? Beloved, if you and I don't have a high enough view of the power of God and of the goodness of God to submit to God when what He requires of us doesn't make sense to us, we will spend our whole lives not submitting to God because He does this kind of thing all the time. All the time. Each of you sitting here today has can easily bring something to mind that doesn't make sense to you that God has set before you. There's something you can always count on. All the time. What God does, He does because of who He is. And it's always, always good. It always glorifies Him. In death and in life, in illness and in health, in humiliation and in exaltation. All that God does with us as His children is good. And it glorifies Him. And another thing you can always count on is whatever glorifies God is good for you. His greatest glory 
is your greatest good. Not the other way around. When Jesus told the servants to fill those water pots, what he said made no sense to them at all. But what he did was perfectly in keeping with who he is. The same God. Jesus is the same God whose signs and wonders had always, always turned the logic of men on its head. He did all that He did to show that He is who He is. Mary's words are golden. Whatever He says to you, do. And what actually happened in this passage? What did the miracle look like? Jesus told the servants of the bridegroom to fill six stone water pots with water. Each of these pots was typically used for water of purification. That water was used to clean the utensils, used for preparation of meals, and it was used by the servants to pour water over the hands of guests to clean the hands of the guests. Because in Israel, it was considered a very unholy thing to eat food with dirty hands. And by the way, if you read Mark 7, verses 1 through 13, I'm not going to do that right now, but read Mark 7, 1 through 13, what what you'll see is that Jesus declared that practice to be a man-made add-on to the real law of Moses. It was something that was just the tradition of men. It didn't come from God. And it did not make men clean. Without any mention in the passage of Jesus doing anything noticeable, (laughs) 120 to 180 gallons of water turned to the finest wine. Jesus instructed one of the servants, likely the chief steward, to draw a cup full from one of those water pots and take it to the head waiter. (laughs) The expectations of the servant at that point and of the head waiter were very different. (laughs) When the head waiter tasted what had to be the finest wine any human being had ever consumed, he turned and asked to talk to the bridegroom. And the bridegroom came and he said, Haven't you heard that you're supposed to keep the good stuff till the end? I mean, give the good stuff at the beginning, keep the cheap stuff till the end. Because, you know, after everybody's taken in some of that really fine wine and their their taste is not quite as discriminating, then the cheap stuff they don't even notice. Obviously, this family was not well-to-do or they wouldn't have run out of wine. So the head waiter was concerned about these things as part of his job. Neither he nor the bridegroom that bridegroom (laughs) knew where this wine had come from. It appears that only a handful of the groom's servants along with Mary and the disciples knew the story behind the wine. Let me ask you, do you think maybe there's a reason that God chose this particular miracle to be the first miracle that Jesus did? Absolutely. I'm going to ask you to turn to... uh, Isaiah 24 and 25, if you've got your Bible, turn to that. I'm going to read some excerpts from each each of those chapters. First, I want to remind you that Philip said to Nathanael in the previous passage, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. John explicitly says that when Jesus performed these signs, he did so to manifest his glory, to show off who he is. So you would expect 
that these signs would match up with the kinds of things that the Old Testament prophets said God's Messiah would do when he came, right? That's exactly what is going on here. And I want to, I want to say that what we're going to see happening in Isaiah 24 and 25 isn't, isn't sort of distantly connected with what's going on here in John 2. It is powerfully connected. And this is a theme that is woven throughout the, the Old Testament prophets, what these passages say about wine. Isaiah 24, behold, verse 1, behold, Yahweh lays the earth waste, devastates it and distorts its surface and scatters its inhabitants. Verse 4, the earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away, the earth is also polluted by its inhabitants. For they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant, therefore a curse devours the earth and those who live in it are held guilty. You get the picture? Mankind violated the character and the law of God that reflects His character and God imposed a curse on the whole earth. The people who live on the earth pollute the earth because of their iniquity. There's a curse over the whole earth. Verse 7, the new wine, the new wine mourns. The vine decays. Just like everything, it's subjected to death. And he says, God says, all the merry-hearted sigh, the gaiety of the tambourine ceases, the noise of revelers stops, the gaiety of the harp ceases. And then he says, they do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. The absence of wine is a symbol here. A symbol of the earth and its inhabitants being under the curse of God because of our sin. The very next chapter of Isaiah turns from judgment to restoration. From condemnation to deliverance. Listen to the words of Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. This is one of, to me, this passage gives me chills. And Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine. Choice meat with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth for Yahweh has spoken. Is that beautiful or what? And it will be said, verse 9, listen to this, it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is Yahweh for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. 
Why did Jesus turn water intended for legalistic ritual purification into the finest wine for a wedding feast as His first miracle? Oh man, I can think of about a thousand reasons. But here's a big one. What better way to say, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the promised One who will save us and all of His creation from the curse that devours the earth because we have transgressed God's law. That curse is the terrible shroud, the veil that covers all people, that stretched over all nations. That curse is death. He will swallow up death for all time. He will wipe tears from all faces. The promised bringer of finest wine is the one for whom we have waited. And His name is Jesus. He's the one. I want to take just a moment to touch on some of the themes, as I promised I would, that I pointed out in the prologue, John 1, 1-18. through Powerful themes that occur in different combinations throughout this Gospel. Instead of elaborating on each of these, I'm just going to pose a brief question or comment just for you to think about. This is just fodder for thought. The first is time. Jesus' relationship to time. How many times have you ever Googled a three-word phrase and come up with only two hits? Doesn't happen very often now. I Googled this three-word phrase in quotes. Instant wine mix. I got back two hits and they were both jokes. Think about that. Jesus' relationship to God. What does this miracle tell you about the deity, the godness of Jesus? Creation. Based on what John said about Jesus' relationship to creation in the opening verses of this Gospel, Is it any surprise that Jesus has the power to turn water into the very finest wine without even breaking a sweat? Light. The beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. That means He brought it into the light. In fact, it was the light. And it is the light. Man. Give some thought to what this passage tells us about Jesus' relationship to His mother, His relationship to His disciples, and His relationship to you. Just some stuff to think about. Finally, I want to... One more question, and that is why so much wine? If you do the math, of course, the the sheer quantity of wine that we're talking about here is is kind of really impressive. It's 120 to 180 gallons of really, really good wine. Our first inclination, including my first inclination, is to say, man, that must have been one really big wedding party. But you know, even if that wedding party consisted of a thousand people, 180 gallons, 120, 180 gallons of wine would have been overkill. God was not into drunkenness. Jesus certainly was not into, into drunkenness. No, I think that misses the point. Beloved, this is a vivid picture not just of provision, but of super abundant provision. And when you tie that super abundance 
together with the theme of the promised bringer of wine, the Savior for whom we have waited, what you end up with is a God who is mighty to save. You have a powerful declaration in this passage that our beautiful Savior saves to the uttermost. He doesn't bring us into His kingdom by the skin of our teeth, beloved. He plucks us out of the darkness and He bathes us in His marvelous light. He brings us into a flood of salvation, an unquenchable fountain of life. Forever. Jesus turned water for ritual purification that could never make clean into a wellspring of finest wine, an overflowing superabundance of well-being in our relationship with God. The Lord's Supper that we took this morning, the wine, is the New Testament fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the bread and the wine. And you know what the pinnacle of the Old Testament sacrificial system was? The peace offerings. And you know what the peace, the sin and guilt offerings, then dedication offerings, whole burnt offerings, and then finally at the top of the chain, peace offerings. You know why? Because peace offerings were a sit-down dinner with God. They were a celebration of well-being in the relationship of God's people with God that was accomplished by the sin offering and the dedication of the whole self to God. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all three. He's the only one who actually does all three. When Jesus sets out to fulfill prophecy, He doesn't mess around. Why did He perform this sign first? Well, certainly not to end the curse right then. That's coming, but that's not why He did this. He did it to demonstrate that He's the one who will end the curse. That He's the promised Messiah. He's the one. Behold, this bringer of finest wine is the one who turns our desperate need into a fountain of life and peace with God. This is the perfect bridegroom who invites His people to a coming wedding feast to end all wedding feasts. Behold, beloved, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is Yahweh for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Each of us who belongs to Jesus is a walking, talking sign that Jesus is the one. Each of you is a far greater miracle of transformation than the turning of water into wine. It was to bring about that transformation, that miraculous salvation that Jesus sacrificed His body and poured out His life's blood at the cross as the perfect bread and the perfect wine without which there is no life. Let me close in prayer. Father, make us bold to proclaim to all that Jesus is the One. The Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the beautiful Savior, our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. And Father, we ask You to display His glory through us. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.